We continue now in Mark's Gospel, the second chapter of Mark's Gospel. When we last were together in Mark, we saw the Lord Jesus cleanse a leper, which was tantamount to raising the dead. Now we see our Lord Jesus Christ healing a paralytic. Let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, help us to come to the Word of God, having poured contempt on all our pride, so that we come under the Word, under the authority of the Word of God. Life without the Word of God is absurd, and we pray that young and old, that everyone here would with heart and soul submit his heart to the teaching of Holy Scripture. And to that end, help this preacher and those of us who minister the word here to be very careful exegetes and to expound and apply the word of God soundly and soberly And with the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, the second chapter, beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, And as he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing him to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, Your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, does it ever strike you when we together recite the Apostles' Creed, how astounding it is that we confess, I believe the forgiveness of sins. 
Many take forgiveness of sin for granted because they do not have a biblical view of sin. If we think that fundamentally our problems are psychological or environmental and do not understand that our sins have separated us from the holy God, then the grace of forgiveness will not be a matter of great magnitude or of wonder. We may not go so far as the 19th century writer Heinrich Heine, who on his deathbed was asked if he was sure that God would forgive him, and he casually answered, of course, that's what God is for. C'est son métier. That's his job. That's his business. But under secular influences, even Christians seem to have lost a sense of wonder at the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. Our sins are heinous, and God came into this world to redeem sinners from that which separated fallen man from the holy God and the holy God from fallen man. And in this text, Jesus' authority to forgive sins is the remarkable theme, and I want us to walk out with the glory of it, the wonder of it, owning each heart here today. We also need to see that his authority to forgive sins introduces an element of controversy that will be traced all the way through Mark's gospel. He has been teaching with authority, casting out demons, healing the sick, even a leper, which was tantamount to raising the dead, was healed by him. And now he will demonstrate the full extent of his authority. We see, first of all, a needy man brought to Jesus. Presumably Peter and Andrew's house, because you will remember that Peter's mother-in-law was healed by Jesus there in Capernaum. But whether it was that house or some other house, so many people wanted to hear Jesus teach that the house was packed with people and they were standing in the crowded lane straining to hear. And then Jesus, in verse 2, was preaching the word to them, which means the gospel of the kingdom that we have seen in Mark's gospel. Remember that this is God incarnate. The assumption of our modern educational system and many a philosopher is that God cannot speak to us, but God does speak. He speaks within his own one unified triune being, first of all, and it should be the most basic assumption that God can and does speak. And we see God incarnate speaking here in this passage, speaking the gospel of grace and the gospel of forgiveness. Someone here may be asking, Does life have meaning? Can I know anything for certain? Are there absolutes? Can I know God? The answer to that is yes. God became man and spoke to us, and through his creation he speaks to us, but especially in his written word he shows himself to be the redeemer of sinners like us. He continues through his word to speak to us. So while preaching preaching the gospel of the kingdom, unpacking for them the greatness of what it means that he has come into the world to be the redeemer. This paralytic could not get in. And there are some friends that want this paralytic to get to him. They can't get through the crowd, and they want him to come, and they want him to be able to walk. Now, a normal house in Capernaum, we actually have archaeological evidence of how the houses were formed. There would be an outside staircase and then a roof with rafters and there would have been matting that would have comprised the ceiling and the roof. And so they simply take the man up and imagine this, children, 
they dig through the roof and they lower the man down to Jesus. Did Jesus continue preaching and the people to listen? I'm sure that it was not easy. They must have been distracted. What must Simon have thought if it was his house about what are these people doing to my house? Mark does not tell us those things because he wants us to see the desperation. What Jesus does about this desperation. He wants us to see there's a poor man that cannot walk and that only Jesus can heal him. And what encouraged the friends to do this? Obviously, they were taken with the uniqueness of Jesus. They had heard him teach, obviously. They had seen or heard of his miracles of healing. They cannot wait to get their friend to Jesus. In other words, they, including this man, according to verse 5, the first part of verse 5, they had faith. Now, faith is a word that's used everywhere in our culture today. It's a very sentimental word, actually. For most people, it's vague. Faith in what? Faith in whom? Well, just faith. Faith in faith, I suppose. But Scripture teaches that faith must have an object. And the object of saving faith is Jesus Christ. And Jesus sees that they have faith because they're looking to him to save the man. Now remember, the miracles of Jesus are signs of the kingdom. And when he performs miracles, it is pointing to the one who came, to God's intervention to establish his kingdom in the hearts of men. And it shows that there is forgiveness of sin. All of the miracles of Jesus point beyond to spiritual realities. And so the miracles of Jesus point in this case to the salvation of this sinner as well. Now you know in this text a needy man is brought to Jesus, but this morning in the preaching of the word of God, Jesus is being brought to needy sinners of whom I am one indeed chief. Do you have faith in Jesus? Have you placed your faith in the only object who can save? Do you realize that it's not the quality of your faith that saves you? It's not the richness of your faith, the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the wonder, the quality, the strength, the sufficiency of the one in whom you put your faith that saves you from your sin. Well, moving along, we see, secondly, Jesus forgives the paralytic. We see this, of course, as we move along here in verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. What? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Your sins are forgiven. He uses an affectionate term of address, one that is full of assurance, The scribes, according to verse 6, are sitting there. They take in the entire scene, but they cannot forgive sins. The form of the verb that is used here is, at this moment, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus is actually forgiving the man his sins right then and there, right there on the spot, just as he might even work in the heart of some lost person here this morning and sovereignly forgive you of your sins. Now, sickness is the result of sin, of the fall of man. There is a connection between sickness and sin, not this man's personal sin necessarily. I don't mean that. But in the sense that, that because of the fall of man, sin has affected everything, including the working of our bodies. And the healing ministry of Jesus, as I've already said, points beyond to the needs of the fallen human heart. Jesus knows this. 
Still, do you suppose the man and his friends were disappointed that he didn't immediately heal him? That they were disappointed that he said, son, your sins are forgiven right there and then at this moment? Do you think that they were disappointed or do you think maybe they were elated? Well, the question more to the point is, do we really believe, do you really believe that man's real need and ours and the need of those around us is the forgiveness of sins, that that need is of greater importance than the healing of the body. And if only they had known what it cost the Lord to make this statement, I say it reverently, God cannot simply forgive sins. It cost the sacrifice of God's own Son to forgive us our sins. And in forgiving this man, Jesus is anticipating the cross upon which the forgiveness depends both for those who trusted before looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah and those of us who have trusted after his cross and resurrection from the dead. So when we understand this, our priorities become one with the Lord's. Forgiveness of sins is the chief need of every person in this room, of everyone that is born into the world. Not the healing, but forgiveness is infinitely the greater need. Now, I rather think the man was thrilled and also surprised. At this very moment, your sins are forgiven. And I think that what we are probably to assume is that this man was deeply troubled about his sins and the Lord knew his heart. He knew that his need was the forgiveness of sins. I think we are to understand the man was troubled by his sin, that he had a sense of guilt, and he is coming into the presence of the holy God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the order of the Greek text is, forgiven are your sins. Jesus is stressing the forgiveness of his sins. Now, some of you remember when Jesus first said to your soul, at this moment your sins are forgiven. The word of God was taken to your heart. You believed in Jesus and you wanted to tell everybody and it drove your life. But then there are older Christians who sometimes think of new converts. He'll calm down. But should we? We should mature, certainly. But it's not maturity to forget the grandeur of the forgiveness of sins, is it? It's maturity to deepen in our understanding of the forgiveness of sins. Shouldn't this continue to characterize us? Are we in danger of forgetting from whence comes our joy? Should not our hearts thrill when every Lord's Day morning we recite, I believe, the forgiveness of sins? Do we see how stupendous a thing, what a wondrous thing, what a grand thing it is to be forgiven our sins? And that Jesus provides the only, the only solution to our sin problem. So we move into an element of controversy. That's the third thing we see in the text, controversy. So read with me verses 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes then speak contemptuously, contemptuously of this man. And they spoke this way in their hearts. But as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
And Jesus' pardon of this man's sins angers the scribes. They accuse our Lord of blasphemy, a capital offense, and it seems that the scribes already are desiring the death of Jesus by speaking of his blasphemy, looking for a way to put him to death. And this is going to get deeper as we move through Mark's gospel. The thought had already entered their hearts this early in the ministry of Jesus that this man must die. And they ask the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? They ask it in the heart. Jesus knows the question they're asking, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, quite. Forgiveness of sins is God's prerogative. Formally, their theology is absolutely correct. The propositional statement, only God can forgive sins, is spot on. Jesus is claiming to do what only God can do. And Mark wants his reader to see that he who forgives with divine authority is therefore God. God incarnate became man. Jesus, the incarnate Lord, went to the cross, rose from the dead. He alone can forgive sins. Now, the smallest child here this morning, I want you to hear this. And the reason I want you to hear this is because when I was a little boy sitting in church, I just couldn't put it together in my head. I just didn't understand. Jesus is a man. Jesus is God. How do these things fit together? Let me encourage you by faith to receive these truths. You'll grow into it. The mystery will actually get deeper, but so will your understanding. Children, Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. And this needs to be stressed due to liberalism. It needs stressing also because, well, I've told you of the Puritan Richard Baxter, how he was he was visiting in home visitation, visited a family that had sat under his ministry for 10 years and discovered that they didn't even know that Jesus was God. They didn't know the deity of Christ. So it's important that we stress this and to say that Mark is actually intending that this be stressed. We are not saying that Jesus is a kind of God or just God-like. No, Jesus is God become man. The Godhood and the sinless humanity of Jesus are in perfect union, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, as the Council of Chalcedon would say. The controversy starts here that leads to Jesus' crucifixion. Had Jesus taught in the typical Pharisaical vein, no one would have objected. Like today, if we just stand in the pulpit and say, be good, or if we teach the universal fatherhood of God or the universal brotherhood of man or inclusivism or whatever it may be, society loves it because it serves their goals. But Jesus was crucified by men because he claimed to be God and could forgive sins. How does your heart resonate with that message? How does your heart respond to that message? For those of us who know that by nature we are utterly alienated from God and helpless, this is the best of news. Jesus is God who can forgive sins. I put my trust in him alone, and I do so on the basis of what he himself teaches us. For example, in the 10th chapter of Mark, in verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's on the basis of what Jesus did that we trust him for the forgiveness of sins.
So there's controversy that's stirring up. He knows their hearts. And so the fourth thing we see is that Jesus demonstrates who he is. He's going to show them who he is. And with supernatural discernment, Jesus understood their thoughts. In verse 8, as we have seen perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? And now verse 9, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now that's a reflective question. He wants them to think about it. He wants you to think about it also. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? What are the implications of this? Well, I suspect you'll agree with me that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it doesn't require any demonstration of any kind. But now let's ask the question, which is easier to do? Which is easier to do? Is, is it easier to forgive sins or is it easier to heal? Well, it's easier to heal. And why is it easier to heal? Because to forgive will require the cross of Christ. To forgive the man is done on the value of the cross on which atonement must take place. Let us never forget the cost for Jesus to enable him to say to this man, your sins are forgiven. It is done on the basis of what he would accomplish when he went to the cross. The paralytic was forgiven in anticipation of the cross as we all who were forgiven before the cross or after the cross, but the cross must take place. And so these simple words, your sins are forgiven, point ahead to the very hard thing, the very, the very wonderful thing, the only thing that could pay the debt. The words point ahead to the precious blood of Jesus Christ spilt on the cross. You know, someone has said, I don't know from where this quote derives, I just know the quote, that wherever the artery of the scriptures is cut, it flows with the blood of the Lamb. And oh, how true that is. Because the whole theme of scripture, ultimately, is the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. So which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, Take your mat and walk. Go home. He wants them to reflect and for us to reflect and to bring the uniqueness of Christ to the fore because He is the issue. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and now our Lord does what the religious leaders would have themselves considered more difficult. He said to the paralytic, verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. As Calvin put it, he is confirming and sealing for faith his authority to forgive. Right there before their very eyes, and of course, those opposing our Lord 
simply became more hard-hearted. They coalesced in opposition to Jesus. They desired his death, and the church's calling today is to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, the message of the forgiveness of sins, and we have the same response. Some people believe by the grace of God, while others oppose and grow even more hard-hearted. But let me ask you, do you know that Jesus has the authority as mediator to forgive you your sins? The one who forgave the paralytic and made him walk, according to verse 10, was the Son of Man. That's no throwaway comment. The Son of Man is from Daniel chapter 7. It is a messianic title, which means that he has authority over all the earth. And that is why he could do what he did and why he can forgive sins now. So how should we respond to this this wonderful narrative of the healing of this paralytic? Well, how did they respond? Some of them, the crowd, we read it in verse 12. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Is there ever a greater application of any text of Scripture to our lives than to have a renewed sense of our Savior's infinite value, sufficiency, worth, and greatness? To walk in life with a sense of wonder, to walk in life with a sense of awe, because we know God in the flesh, and have been forgiven by him. The miracle caused amazement, and the entire incident caused amazement. For those of us whose sins have been forgiven, we should be more filled with amazement than were those who saw the paralytic healed. And this amazement should grow, and this amazement should control our thoughts and our words and our deeds and the way in which we live in our homes as husbands to our wives and wives to our husbands and how we rear our children and how we relate to others around us. And the amazement will be, for God's people, an eternal amazement. It will be forever and ever. But let me remind you that later in Mark, we have the parable of the soils. Some who rejoiced may have been granted renewed hearts, while others, for others, perhaps it had no permanent root. So what is the church's calling amidst this antagonism to God and his truth? If they hated me, they will hate you, said our Lord to his apostles. Well, first, we must not accommodate The church is never called to accommodate, to adjust or trim its message for the world. And then secondly, we must be faithful no matter what, no matter how difficult, no matter the circumstances, we must be faithful to proclaim to the world that God, through Christ, saves sinners. When a lost sinner is drawn out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's own dear Son. 
When a lost sinner is called, his soul will, will see and feel for the very first time the reality of those words of Toplady's hymn, Rock of Ages. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Is that true of you? Have you known that experience within your heart? Do you have saving faith in Jesus Christ alone for your redemption? Now, some of you know this little story that I'm about to read to us. Some of you don't. But I think that it illustrates very well the power and wonder of the forgiveness of sins. As an addendum to this text this morning, let me read it to you. A well-known preacher was getting ready for bed one night when he heard a knock at the front door. Upon answering it, he found a little girl dressed in rags. As he stood looking into her thin, haggard little face, she said, Are you the preacher? Yes, I am, he replied. Well, won't you come down and get my mother in, she asked. The preacher answered, My dear, it is hardly proper for me to come and get your mother in. If she's drunk, you should get a policeman. Oh, sir, she said quickly, you don't understand. My mother isn't drunk. She's at home dying, and she's afraid to die. She wants to go to heaven, but doesn't know how. I told her I would find a preacher to get her in. Come quick, sir, she's dying. The preacher could not resist the appeal of the little girl. So he promised her that he would come as soon as he was dressed. The little girl led him into the slum district of an old house up a rickety stairway along a dark hall and finally to a dismal room. And there the dying woman lay in a corner. I've got the preacher for you, mother. He wasn't ready to come at first, but he's here now. You just tell him what you want and do what he tells you and he'll get you in. Too weary to sit up, the poor woman raised her feeble voice and asked, Can you do anything for a sinner like me? My life has been lived in sin, and now that I'm dying, I feel that I'm going to hell. But I don't want to go there. I want to go to heaven. What can I do now? Looking at her sin-weary face, the preacher thought, What can I tell her? I've been preaching salvation by reformation, but this poor soul has gone too far to reform. I've been preaching salvation by character, but she hasn't any. I know what to do. I'll tell her what my mother used to tell me as a boy. She's dying, and it can't hurt, even if it doesn't do her any good. Bending down beside her, the preacher began, My dear woman, God is very gracious and kind, and in his book, the Bible, he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, exclaimed the dying woman, does it say that in the Bible? My, that thought ought to get me in, but sir, my sins, my sins. He was amazed at the way the verses came back to him. My dear woman, he continued, the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin, did you say? She asked earnestly. Does it really say all sin? That ought to get me in. 
Yes, he replied, kneeling down beside her. It says, all sin. God's book also says, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Well, she said, if the chief got in, I can come in. Pray for me, sir. The preacher bent down and prayed with the poor woman, just as she was, just as she was, She came to Jesus, who never turned anyone away, and she got in. And in the process, added the preacher, while she was getting in, I myself got in. We two sinners, the preacher and that poor woman, entered salvation's door together that night. The preacher's good living, says the author of this, The preacher's good living didn't get him in, nor did the poor woman's bad life keep her out. Both were sinners, for all have sinned, and as such they entered through the same door to life and peace by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say to you on the authority of God's Word that this Jesus who spoke to the paralytic and said to him, Sons, son, forgiven are your sins, continues to work in the hearts and souls of lost sinners. And if your sins are so great that you think you cannot be saved, you are desperately wrong. Jesus came into this world, the God-man, to save such as you. Trust in Christ. And if you are a moral person and you're trusting in your morality to save you, cast it aside because it will never work. You trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and your redemption. And that is the great truth that we take from this narrative in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. Amen and amen.